when people today go looking for a church, I think there's some um, a checklist of kind of questions that they be interested in, and they might come and they might say things like, well, we've got young children, so what facilities have you got for toddlers and children? That's valid? That's good? What have you got for young people and young adults today in our world? And so they want to know about the youth ministry and the youth programs. They might say, you know, what kind of music do you sing? Do you use kind of piano and organ and old hymns, or do you sing off the wall, or, you know, whatever do you do? Um, I Frankly, I enjoy kind of some of the old hymns I enjoy, the new stuff that we, we sing. I really enjoy the range of, of music. Okay. If you're in a kind of a downtown or busy church, they might say to you, is there parking? That's important. If I come a Sunday morning, um, will I be able to get parked and find my car later, or will it be towed? What do you do for homeless people and street people? A lot of people are interested in that today as a church. But what does your church do for homeless people? Very valid question. And they might ask, what's your position on social issues such as um, homosexuality? They're all legitimate. But if there's one question that I hardly ever get asked today, I think it's, from where I come from, it's really uh, the most important. Um, they should also be asking, tell me what your church believes. What do you teach? And the reason for that is that, uh, the reason I think that question is often missing is that our cultural climate today provides the context for very mixed and opposing, contradictory opinions about what truth is. We need to understand as Christians in 2012 um, the, the philosophical climate in which we try to do church. We need to know um, what's going on in our world. There's a group of people in the book of Chronicles who are called the sons of Issachar. And it only tells you one line about them. It says the sons of Issachar knew the times in which they lived. That's all it tells you about the sons of Issachar. And we need to know the times in which we live. So what's going on in our society? Let me give you some things today. You've got some notes to follow, some stuff on the PowerPoint here. We live in a time of what's called pragmatism. Pragmatism simply sees truth as whatever works. In pragmatism, truth inevitably becomes relative. There's no absolute truth. And so we simply give a positive value if something works. We say, well, if it works, it's got to be true. It's kind of an ethical Darwinism. You see, the real conflict between Christianity and pragmatism is the conflict between what, on the one hand, is right and true, and on the other hand, what is simply expedient. And the principal spokesman for pragmatism is in the Bible. He's a man called Caiaphas. And it says, literally, about him in the Gospel of John, he says, it is expedient. What it says is, it is pragmatic today that one man died for the good of the nation. It's not about right or wrong. It's simply, we've got to do what the job demands here, folks. And it is expedient that one man die. Who is it going to be? It really doesn't matter. That's pragmatism. We live also in a culture and in a country of pluralism. Under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, Canada defines itself as a pluralistic nation. So there's a mosaic of cultures and religions in which no one should be allowed to impose a set of beliefs upon another. Truth is a kind of a smorgasbord. Just take your plate and go along, pick whatever you like. No single truth overarches everything. Rather, there's many truths. 
Some of them actually conflict with each other. They sort of jostle and bump against each other. And yet within this pluralistic mosaic, you need to understand that there are tendencies that run counter to the spirit of true pluralism. There's a strong urge today towards what's called a monolithic culture. It means sort of one size fits all. There's uniformity and neutrality. In pluralism, absolutes are a threat because they present convictions. Convictions are equated with prejudices. And facing this social pressure, Christian distinctives are really forced to conform to our society. This double-sided emphasis of diversity on the one hand and uniformity on the other means that Christian truth no longer has a place of privilege in our culture. We have to find our feet in the rough and tumble of the marketplace of ideas. So for many people, the Christian gospel is simply one other voice in this religious cafeteria. Well, it's also, we've been for the last couple hundred years, as many of you know, in a time of what's called modernism. Modernism is a period of about 200 years, roughly running from about 1750 to about 1950. The dates are not accurate, but they will give you an idea what it is. Sort of from the fall of the Bastille to the fall of the Berlin Wall. The dates are not exactly on those years, but you get the point. 200 years. And in modernism, science and knowledge became supreme. It gave birth to the spirit of humanism. Reality was whatever you could see and touch and examine. And humanism is no place for the spiritual or the supernatural. Osganas called humanism a striptease. He says it offers you everything and in fact gives you nothing. And in this drive for um, economic satisfaction and material happiness, it did not satisfy the quest of the human heart for spiritual reality. But we are moving out of a time of modernism. In fact, we've moved out of our time of modernism into a very different climate. We've moved today into a spirit of what's called postmodernism. It simply means we're now coming after modernism. And one of the bright spots in our culture today is the recovery and the interest and the desire for what is spiritual. The good news today is that we're finding a new interest in spirituality. Spirituality is not only permissible, it is popular. It's a big seller. It makes money. It welcomes guests on Oprah. It makes bestsellers of people in Deepak Chopra. <coughs> it takes center stage recently to a best-selling book in an entire industry, which was called The Secret, which promised a new era for humankind. And it seems that today in postmodernism, people are hungry for something new and fresh to see. This spiritual hunger is good news. It is also bad news. Because with the demise of Christendom, the data that was used to determine and evaluate truth has changed. Truth is now shaped and determined on the basis of pragmatism, relativism, and pluralism. In the abandonment of Christendom, the steady abandonment of the Christian faith as the moorings of society has left people, frankly, with empty and hungry hearts, but still gullible. The British writer, a mystery writer, G.K. Chesterton, said, when man, by the way, that's man and woman, stop believing in God. He no longer believes in nothing. He now believes in anything. And I think we need to take some responsibility for this as Christians in the church. First of all, Christians, and I challenge you with this this morning, Christians have succumbed to a lazy attitude about their faith. 
Our knowledge of our faith, our knowledge of the Bible, our knowledge of God, our knowledge of those ancient words that we were just singing about this morning is frankly often fuzzy and less than it should be. Christians cannot afford to be intellectually lazy. A Gallup poll in the year 2000 asked a whole bunch of people questions about the Bible. To see what people really, really knew about the Bible. Here's what he said. When people were asked, who preached the Sermon on the Mount? That, by the way, is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. Who preached the Sermon on the Mount? Only half of them knew. Other people suggested it was Billy Graham. Some other people said it was Martin Luther King. 75 people said that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, was actually in the Bible. It's not. They were asked who Noah's wife was. 10% of the people suggested Jonah Bark. If you know your history, you know it could not have been Jonah Bark. And who was Moses? 8% of the people said Moses was one of the 12 apostles. Our knowledge of the Bible and God's truth is, frankly, times pretty fuzzy. Secondly, we have to confess that orthodox doctrine and Bible teaching has not always led Christians to living in what we call the power of the Spirit. We have not always seen the marriage of God's truth and the transforming power of God in our lives. Remember we sung about those ancient words that are really here to change us. Christian ethics, sadly often, are no different than anybody else's ethics. The church will not and cannot survive in the future. Let me suggest in a city like Vancouver, even as short as 10 years away, if Christians do not know their Bible in truth, and if their lives are not substantially different because of the grace of God and the grace of Jesus Christ, without this substantive change in us and in our churches, the ark that once saved us will become the Titanic. So what is truth? That's the question Pilate put to Jesus. What is truth? We come back this morning again to 1 John chapter 4. You got your Bibles, iPads, iPods, iPhones, i-somethings, i-whatevers. 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to read six verses. They're critical for us. Because they present us with the challenge of asking how a passage today is a passage which is stamped with truth. 1 John chapter 4. I ask you to stand. You know, in the book of Nehemiah, it says they stood when the God's word was read. Let's stand. I'll read. You follow. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but... Every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus Christ is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard is coming and even now is in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Because one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world. The world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. So, Father, this morning, as we take a few minutes to probe our way into this word, 
may you help us to know and affirm and be committed to truth in our lives and be able to recognize truth for what it is. Amen. So John begins with a warning. And I think it's a very important warning for our postmodern culture. He says, test the spirits. It's the word for test and metal. It means put, the, put truth in the crucible and turn up the heat and see what level of purity it has. First Thessalonians 5 gives, 5 gives exactly the same challenge. It says to us, test everything. Hold on to what is good. You see, today you cannot afford to be gullible and you cannot afford to be closed-minded. So what kind of grid do we have in our minds? What kind of checklist, what kind of matrix do we build to check for truth? Without that, we do not have the ability or the competence to separate and sift truth from error. So here's a challenge what it means first. Because Paul says, do you remember the young Timothy, 2 Timothy 4? For the time will come when man and woman will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their desires, they will gather around a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So let me this morning, as a framework, give you seven things that you might use as a checklist for truth. So when I test the spirits, and I want to say, is this a truthful message? Here are seven things and a matrix that you can apply to that. Number one, does this message... Lead me to love God more. It says in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13, If a prophet or one who foretells dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if a sign or wonder which you've spoken takes place, and he says, Let us follow other gods, gods you've not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or the dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart, with all your soul. Christian truth is rooted, first of all, in the belief that there's only one God. And as the Shema says in the book of Deuteronomy, we are to love him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Jesus says that this is the first and the greatest commandment. So the starting point for truth might simply be this. What am I listening to? Is it asking me to, to move closer to loving God and serve God more, or in some way uh, that I will see the discernment and insight? Or might this truth be leading me down a road <coughs> that will really take me away from God? Maybe that's a starting point. Number two, does this teaching affirm and confirm the fullness of God in Jesus? First John chapter 4 we just read says, A truthful message agrees with the truth that, notice the phrase, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That's because the person of Jesus Christ is the touchstone of truth or error. The most critical question we can ask about truth is this. What does it say about Jesus? Who is Jesus? And you remember that as we work through First John, that John is challenging the, the, the spirit of Gnosticism, which separated the spiritual and the physical. In the person of Jesus, and it says in the Gospel, the Word became flesh, this division is ended. Colossians chapter 2. For in Christ all of the fullness of God dwells, Paul says, in bodily form. All of the fullness of God appears in the flesh and blood of Jesus. Christian truth is founded on the basis that Jesus is fully God, fully man, 
that existed in eternity with the Father. That is not something, by the way, which Jehovah's Witnesses can accept. They believe that Jesus was a created being. And at the time in which he did not exist, their teaching fails the test. It also says that much of the New Age teaching about Christ consciousness fails the test. The truth of the incarnation which we celebrate at Christmas, O come let us adore him, Christ the Lord, is the ultimate yardstick about which we will measure everything. But the tests don't stop there. Test number three. Does this message ask me to yield, surrender myself to Jesus as Lord? When Paul wrote to the church in the city of Corinth, Corinth, by the way, was a seaport, it was a very immoral, very evil city. Corinth was, he was writing to a church that had distorted all kinds of false spirits from genuine or authentic spirits. They knew the reality of a false charismatic spirit, but they also wanted to know what was an authentic charismatic spirit. So he says to them in what we call chapter 12, now, that spiritual gifts, brothers, and I want to add sisters, I don't want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagan, somehow you were influenced and led away to dumb or mute idols. Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God can say Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So a truthful message then is one that will move men and women and young people to bring their lives under the authority and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul says that's what the Holy Spirit does to us. In a time then, and I say in a time now, in which there's a great emphasis and a lot of confusion about the role of the Holy Spirit, we need to remember the teaching of Jesus. But when the Spirit of truth comes, you see, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He will guide you unto all truth, and He will glorify me. So we need to ask, if I follow this teaching, will this lead in, and guide me to knowing and experiencing the truth that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life? If I follow this teaching, will it lead me closer to the place where I find that I bow my, my will and I bend my knee to Jesus? You need to ask that. Text number four. Is this teaching consistent, word I use a fair bit, with the tapestry of God's word? Now you know and I know that the scriptures teach a lot of things. And to understand them properly, you've got to keep them in delicate balance, and at times in tension with each other. Most heresies begin as truth taken out of context. You look the verse here and a verse there, you magnify it and you enlarge it out of proportion to its original meaning and intent. And so the fragile, what I call the tapestry of God's word is broken. We need to understand in the Bible there's what I call large truth or big truth, the great themes of God, redemption, salvation, grace, and then there's smaller truths. And the smaller truths have to nest inside the teaching and the emphasis of the large truth. When we allow smaller truths to dominate, the real message, the big truth, will easily become distorted and out of context. You understand that? So the big truth always has to dominate, and small truths have to nest inside that. People will often argue what their teaching is in the Bible. That may be true. The words may be in the Bible. But if they take them out of context, they can distort their meaning. And very frankly, they can say almost anything they want. I say this carefully. Not everything in Scripture has to be read and followed with the same weight. 
when we follow the demands of Scripture, we need to understand how it applies. Nothing will lead us astray with greater speed or greater danger than when we major on the Myers. Jesus understood that. Jesus knew that. That's what the Pharisees did. They majored on the minors. That's number five. Does this teaching echo the consensus of Christian history and Christian community? One of our traits of modern culture, of modernism, is individualism. And when we bring this spirit of individualism into our spiritual lives, we teach in Bible study, we hear people ask, as they work through a passage of Scripture, they hear people ask, you know, as I read this, I'm asking myself, what does this mean to me? So I'm the only important person in the universe. What does this passage say that it means to me? Now that sounds good. That sounds good and right. But understand me, it has little sense of communal accountability. Truth is not a commodity just for individual interpretation or experience. Truth has to sit in the middle of the whole people of God. Those ancient words that we were singing about. They didn't come just from individuals. They came and were forced out of the community of Christ in the world. That simply means when we read a Bible, we need to look backwards and ask, how has the church, how has the whole church in history, for the last 2,000 years, how has it thought about this passage? What has the church said about it? What is what has the church done with this truth? This perspective, this question of looking back into history and saying, people like, you know, what did Martin Luther, and what did Calvin, and what did these people in church history, what did they say about this truth? You see, folks, truth has walked a lot of miles. And we would be grossly negligent if we ignored how the church in history has handled the issues of truth and faith. Some of the books I read today, you almost feel that the church started somewhere around 1980. It didn't. It started 2,000 years ago. And people in history have walked a lot of miles with truth. We need to know what they said and thought. The second thing is that truth needs to be weighed in the context of community. I mean church. Discussed in community. Prayed about in community. And practiced in community. This cuts across the individualism that we are used to living with in our society. So we need to say, what does the church say about this truth today? Not just me, not just you, but when we see this truth at work in the context and in the womb of the church, the whole church, what does it say to us? And how do we step in with that? Second Peter, verse that we don't read very often. You must understand that we got this, yeah, there it is. You must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. It doesn't mean we arrive at the truth by voting on it, by the way. Truth is not democratic. But truth comes down from God and it resides in the midst of a fellowship. Do you understand? We need, what has the church said about this truth? We need to carry that forward. That's what brings the ancient words to today. A lot more to be said. We've got to move on. Number six. Does this teaching that I'm working with or someone's trying to um, give to me, does it bind me or does it set me free? Remember Jesus says in John 8, 
We will know the truth, and the truth will set us free. Richard Foster was a Quaker. I wrote Celebration of Discipline, a book that really impacted the Christian church about 25 plus years ago. He said, this is so true, he says, somehow the human spirit has the extraordinary knack of taking the best teaching and turning it to the worst ends. He says, nothing can put people in bondage like religion. Got it? Nothing can put people in bondage like religion. I think of that almost every time I watch things that came out of the Middle East and the Taliban and things like that. Nothing can put people in bondage like religion. Here's things to watch for. Some teaching that tries to get you what another person wants you to do. Teaching that tries to replace the grace of God with rules. Truth will demand of us more than religion could ever dare to ask. But it will ask you to write a deeper law. The book of Jeremiah says it's a law to be written on your heart. On your heart. Number seven. How does truth change how people behave? I think we get this idea, at least I get this idea in this passage. So the way in which John talks about us and them. John says in this passage, there's us and there's them. There's two different audiences. And he says, we can test the spirit and the truthfulness of a message, not only by examining its content, but also by examining its audience. Very simply, what kind of people does this message produce? So Sunday by Sunday, out of this pulpit, as we try to say, this is what the love of God says, this is what the grace of God says, this is how God's to be at work in our lives. Okay? And then you've got to ask, what kind of people does that send out into your communities and your work Monday through Saturday from BCBC? You know, sometimes you hear people say, you know, what we believe is not important. What we really is important is relationships. The people care and love one another. Yes, we're committed to growing a people who love one another. But, can I say this morning, we also need to be men and women and young people who know the truth. And they live by the truth. And the truth shapes and forges our lives. You see, truth sifts and sorts the people who respond to it. People who know the truth as we find it in Jesus, they must live substantially changed lives because of the truth. And knowing truth demands nothing less than that of us. So we need to ask every Sunday, when we dismiss you in a word of blessing, what kind of people are we sending out of Chinese, Vancouver Chinese Baptist Church into the streets and homes and workplaces in Vancouver? What message have you heard? Have you heard a truthful message? And how will that message be lived out in the week? The reason is today that most people where you live and work in your schools and offices, when you see them tomorrow morning, most people today will not open a Bible. That's if they have a Bible. And they will not know anything about the message of God's love. But do you know that God is giving them a Bible? God is giving them and has given them a Bible that lives and breathes and walks and talks. That is our lives. And you say, where's that? It's found in Corinthians. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ. The result of our ministry. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but he says on tablets of human hearts. The people that you're working with, they don't 
They don't open a Bible. But they read you. They read me. They watch your life. And out of that, they look at the kind of person that you are. So, very briefly this morning, we've been talking about those, these tests as though truth was a pile of information. A list of beliefs. And you simply got a checklist to go with a sermon or a book or a passage. You simply got your checklist and you say, yes, yeah, is that, yes, is that, yes, is that, yes, is that. The impression is that you can go down the checklist and say yes to each one. And then what you believe is the truth. Can I just say to you this morning, as we turn into communion in a moment, that falls so far, far short. It is that. But it is so, so much more. Embracing the truth is not an intellectual checklist. Embracing the truth is to intimately know and to fall in love with a person whose name is Jesus. When you take bread and wine in a moment this morning, can you know, can you know, that you are being nourished, you're being fed, you're being embraced, you're being loved, by this one who is the truth. Pastor Cindy's going to come and lead us to that.